Um, at, at NASA, routinely, we would, we would use the airborne platform or the sounding rockets or balloons for that. But it's so much more effective with the CubeSat platform because you go through the full rigor of testing for space. So it's, it's a perfect training ground, you know, from early career all the way down to inspiring, I think, high school students. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil. And Drew Walters. And TJ Terzovitz. And today we're speaking with NASA applied physicist uh, Dr. Pam Millar about CubeSats, NASA, and the impact of small satellites on astronomy, science, and access to space. Dr. Millar is a specialist in remote sensing and serves as NASA's um, ESTO flight validation lead in, and INVEST, which stands for In Space Validation of Earth Science Technologies. Uh, she's the program manager of INVEST. She's also co-chair of the Women in Astronomy Conference in 2009. Dr. Millar joins us today via Skype from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Dr. Millar, welcome to SpexCast. Hi, good to be here. So uh, Pam, uh, what do you do at NASA? So I am actually um, a NASA headquarters program manager for the INVEST program. And uh, I work within the ESTO office, that stands for Earth Science Technologies Office. And so the INVEST program has mainly been focusing on uh, developing CubeSats. So the, um, the 1U 10 by 10 by 10 form factor uh, to validate technologies that would either later be used in a larger satellite or as a pathfinder for constellations to do um, for measuring the dynamic processes of the Earth. Great. So uh, besides the form factor of uh, CubeSats being much smaller, smaller than a typical full-scale satellite, what are other aspects of CubeSats that are uh, unique to the platform? All right. So I'll, I'll start by saying that not only do they have um, a well-defined standard, which is based on the 10 by 10 by 10 1U, but they're also very low cost compared with other satellites. And um, along with that comes a certain tolerance for risk that you have to have, which is not sort of the normal way at NASA, that we're, we're not very risk tolerant here with our larger missions because they are very expensive. Uh, so that's um, a really exciting, unique part in that you can put things up very quickly also. So it's, it's really opened up um, getting quick access to space because these CubeSats have this well-defined interface and standards. Um, we also have uh, containers that they go into and deploy from, and those are well-defined. If, it, if It's sort of analogous to the shipping industry. And before they had, they didn't have these containers where you could put things in and stack them up and um, have a very quick turnaround for shipping and low cost. It's, it's the same with CubeSats. We've sort of containerized small satellites so that they can be low cost and uh, quick turnaround. There probably isn't a typical mission, but how long uh, are you talking about for the full mission from conception to launch for a CubeSat? So depending on what you want to do, it can be anywhere from a year to several years. Whereas when you think about um, the large missions that we do, it, it takes a certain amount of time to define the concept, 
and then go through all the different processes it takes in order to reduce risk. Um, and so you're talking about anywhere from uh, four to seven years or more, actually, or more, depending on what you're doing. Uh, it could be up to 10 years. So um, it's, it's just a complete paradigm shift. And, you know, the more risk that you're willing to take, the quicker you can do things. Because, you know, it's a matter of how much testing do you want to put into it. You know, when it first started out in 1999 with um, Cal Poly and Stanford, it was just supposed to be for training students. So it was a, a nice test bed, if you will, for learning systems engineering and to get real hands-on experience for future scientists and engineers to become experimentalists and maybe go into space and learn systems engineering. So it was really about the process of doing it. And so, you, so you'd want to do it very quickly because students only stay in school for so long. So it was just um, a perfect start um, for CubeSats. And that's actually a very interesting thing is that most people might think, oh, this goes into space. It comes from NASA or it's big, big space industries. But, you know, NASA... I believe in the beginning probably didn't take these things very seriously. Um, you know, what can you do with something that small? Um, but now we're learning you can do a lot more. So um, you mentioned that developing a small, really quick turnaround uh, satellite is a lot different from what NASA is, you know, quote unquote used to. Is the culture of a, a CubeSat building team different? Are there more startup type elements to it than um, the slow, methodical, risk averse culture? Or is it kind of bringing the old style with the new uh, faster paced style of development um, to development? So the way I like to think about it is you do what makes sense. So it doesn't make sense to put the full rigor into something so small that if you're going to do a technology demonstration, um, you're, you're not going to go through the full rigor. You're not going to have all rad hard parts, for example. You're going to have off-the-shelf parts. And um, for s I think for some engineers, it really took, you know, a, a change in their mindset because they're so used to doing so much testing. You want to do what makes sense given the resources that you have and the time that you have. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, with CubeSats, well, when they first had started, was there technologies from larger satellites that could be easily brought over with that kind of flight heritage? Or were CubeSats really kind of a, a new crop of technologies for that unique application? Okay, so let me just say I've only been in charge of this program for two years, and it's a very new program at NASA. But when it first started um, at university, uh, it was actually what's available now was driven by the universities, and they set the standards, but industry picked it up very quickly. But all of this leverages, um, you know, the miniaturization of electronics. So the miniaturization of, um, of GPS units, for example, of power systems, of all, all the um, guidance, navigation, and control that you would have on a regular satellite. Like, for example, star trackers, they've miniaturized them. A lot of these sensors that aren't too complicated you know, with the advancement of camera technology, uh, you've been, they've been able to, you know, just take advantage of all the things that get miniaturized. I guess you could put it that way. Yeah, and you mentioned Cal Poly and other universities kind of inventing the CubeSat standard. 
do you foresee that standard lying in regards to the universities or do you think NASA is going to kind of co-op that standard or a new small sat standard comes out? I believe that that standard is going to stay and anybody that wants to get in on it is going to stay with that standard because that's what keeps the cost so low because you can buy these things off the shelf. And so uh, from a NASA perspective, it, it, it makes sense for us to push the technology to have more capability um, and it makes sense for us to so there's there's the um, the spacecraft side of things and then there's also the sensor side of things so there's um, there's a group at NASA that focuses on the spacecraft you know for maybe for getting more accurate pointing for example something you would need for um, for astronomy you want to be very stable to the arc second level um, so it makes sense for NASA to invest money in doing things like that. And also, uh, with respect to miniature, miniaturizing sensors, um, within the Earth Science Technology Office, we have an instrument incubator program, and that's one of, our, um, one of our goals, is to keep miniaturizing sensors. So it makes sense for us to um, focus on the sensor side and maybe let industry take over the spacecraft bus side, if you will. And then anybody who wants to work on a CubeSat, they can, and they want to do science, for example, they would only have to worry about the reliability of their sensor, because the more that industry reproduces these buses, and as the capability increases, you could just buy those off the shelf and then develop the capability on the sensor side. And the more industry does works on these buses, like Blue Canyon Technologies is a good example, they just had their first bus get launched um, into space. Uh, it was a secondary on Worldview 4 launch that was November 11th. And um, at this point, uh, their bus appears to be working on the, the RAVEN instrument, which is a radiometer assessment using vertically aligned nanotubes. So the, the point that I wanted to make is, you know, if industry is starting to make buses more, there's there's actually, um, Cal Poly has a list of all the industry that makes buses and components and subsystems. And the more that you make those and put them into space, the more reliable they will be, even at a lower cost. So that's a, that's a big advantage that's, that's starting to happen, is that instead of, a, a lot of the universities would do the whole thing. They would do the spacecraft side and the sensor side. Um, but right now, it's, it's evolving into... Um, have industry do the buses and then maybe uh, NASA or other government agencies work on the sensor side as, as one example. But also industry has really taken off with constellations, with the onset of the miniaturization of cameras. For example, Planet Labs, they, they deploy, uh, I, I don't even know how many, it's like tens maybe, I don't think they're up to 100, but they may be up to 100, uh, just Earth observing cameras. Um, and that's that's an industry for that's that's starting to boom where you where you can buy data of Earth images. Um, again, it's there's a need for the data or the images to be validated. You know where are they? Um, what is the resolution, et cetera? There are things like that that need to keep up. But but industry has really taken this on. Yeah, you talk about uh, the sensors and NASA kind of pushing forward sensors. Um, at what point does the, like the low-cost platform the CubeSat with re industry mass-reducing, reducing the cost of the bus, 
uh, how expensive, how complex can those sensors get before it starts becoming less of a, a more high-risk mission? And like, what is that tipping point? And does that tipping point move as we get more experience? It's an iterative process. So I, th I think what happens is you might start out doing a technology demonstration to just reduce the risk of a technology that, that could go on to a large spacecraft. Then you can have um, a sensor where you would want to do a constellation, but you want to start with one. And then so the question is, okay, with this first one, with this first sensor that we put up, is it, what is the performance like? Do we need to increase the performance in order to do the science? So you have to realize I come from doing science with CubeSats. That's my perspective on things. So what you would want to do is um, a demonstration of the measurement. How good is that measurement? And what's good enough? So you have to figure out what that is from a science perspective. And then once you do one, then you might want to do tens or hundreds of these CubeSats. And um, so at that, at that point, um, when you, if you're mass producing a bunch of them, the, the cost should come down because you're doing many, many at once. And I, I think there are, there are some principal investigators, for example, that want to do constellations that are looking into, you know, what's the best cost effective way of mass producing these. Basically, the more that you do, the more reliable they become and the less risk they, you know, they would have. But I'm talking about being in low Earth orbit. If you're going to go try and do a deep space, for example, go to planetary, there are other challenges, and you would probably be less risk adverse. So what I'm trying to say is it really depends on what your end goal is. If, if you want to do very precise science and you're going to do many satellites, you probably want to do maybe a little bit more testing. Um, but another aspect to consider is, since there is such a quick turnaround, and if you're sort of in this business of mass producing tens, or maybe up to 100 of these satellites, and you can get a launch within a year or two, then you can, you can afford to have several not work or fail, because you can put them right back up. So. So it's probably um, some kind of algorithm someone is, is working on. I would, I would guess Planet Labs is probably looking into this. I think they have an acceptable rate of, I think I read in an article, it was maybe like 20% loss that they, could deal, that they could tolerate and still um, do what they want to do, do the, take the images globally of what they want to do. So um, it, it really depends what your end goal is, and, and I think... You know, when, when you start considering doing planetary science, the missions are probably going to be a little more expensive. Yeah, definitely. With CubeSats being very small objects in space and launching so many of them, especially in constellations, is there a concern for space junk? Like um, if these small satellites die um, and they're very small, moving very quickly, is that something to be concerned about, especially in the years to come? Yes. So I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit, but let me just start with how things are being done right now. So, you know, I, th I believe you're, you're probably talking about or what we call orbital debris. Yeah. So at, at this point, um, from my knowledge, probably the highest 
you can launch one of these, and, and I'm talking from the perspective of not using propulsion at this point, without propulsion, because a lot of them don't have propulsion on board. Um, uh, a little bit, probably 550 or 600 kilometers is the most that you'll be able to get into orbit just because of what, what the rockets are willing to put you in. But there's um, an orbital debris uh, assessment that you have to do, and that's a part of your frequency licensing. So if you want to communicate with your satellite, you have to apply for a frequency license. And so a part of that process is, is to do this analysis. And so the requirement is within um, 25 years of your mission being over, you have to show in this analysis that your uh, CubeSat will burn up into the atmosphere. And so with, with the ones that we've done in my organization, I think the most they last, given the orbits they have, is like eight years or less. So it kind of like cleans itself up over time? Yeah, the orbit degrades over time, and then it eventually will burn up into Earth's atmosphere. So with, within this orbital debris assessment, you, you have to make sure you're not, you're not putting materials that will be harmful in your CubeSat. The, the, other, the other thing is um, the group that integrates your CubeSat into a deployer and then and, you know, works with the, the launch vehicle to get you launched and deployed, they require you to do an orbital debris assessment as well, a report. So they don't just let anything go up anywhere. So there's a, there's a certain amount of control right now because of that concern. So we take that very, very seriously. Um, but in the future, when you start seeing um, huge constellations, that is definitely a concern. And I'm actually right now um, in discussions with some people at NASA, and, and I'm hoping to bring in other government organizations to talk about um, the ground stations and sort of doing, um, and this, this is probably in, in the area called um, information systems technologies, where you would want to be able to coordinate these constellations so, and, and analyze, you know, there's, there's a government agency that tracks everything that's up there. And so, you know, for the large satellites, they, they, will, they will give the mission a heads up, hey, there's some debris in your way, and they'll, they'll let you know. Um, and so you can do a maneuver if you have to. Uh, but what I'm talking about is either from the ground or from satellite to satellite is to be able to coordinate maneuvers so that you avoid collisions. So that's, that's something with, with the exponential growth, I think, that we're seeing right now in the, in the CubeSat area. I think that's something that we're all taking very seriously, and we're going to analyze it, and we're going to try and come up with solutions because um, it, it will get to a point, you know, where, where that does become a real concern. Right now, it's, it's not so much of a concern, but, it, but I think it will be. Are CubeSats difficult to track? Like, are, like uh, large satellites and, like, obviously the space station are really easy to, to track across the sky, but CubeSats being very small, do they blend in with other things, or is it hard to detect? So I, I, I would, so that's, that's not really my area of expertise. However, I will tell you that okay. the, government, the government organization that does this, um, and, and I know at, at the 1U and 3U level, once they spread out, so you have a, a deployment, for example, and maybe right. within the first few hours, they might, you might confuse them. But I would, 
after a day or two, you can pick out which one is which. And when you do communications and beaconing, you can figure out which is which. So it's at this point, um, it's not, it has not been a problem. Now with uh, constellations of CubeSats and also small sats growing, uh, for example, SpaceX wants to put up 4,000 uh, small sat uh, comsats. Yeah, do you see uh, a shift away from monolithic satellites in GEO and LEO to more constellations? So again, it, it depends on what your end game is. Um, I th so let me let me just comment on the, on the SpaceX. I, um, they <laughs> I don't know what they're calling the the constellation or the project, but I think it's for. Uh, global Wi-Fi, maybe, and it's at a very, very high altitude. I, I believe the documents are uh, like anywhere from 1,000 to uh, 1,200 kilometers. So, yeah, they're they're way out there, and the farther out you get, the more space there is between things, right? So, I certainly believe there's a place for both. I've so to start with, I think there's always going to be a, a place for. Uh, training the next generation scientists and engineers um, from universities, and there there are a lot of government opportunities to propose to do, you know, these these very small onesie twosie missions, um, you know, with schools. And, and in fact, I read recently that um, Thomas Jefferson was it a high school did their first so the first high school CubeSat was done, and so. There's a lot. There's there's getting to be more and more involvement at different levels of students, lower than the undergraduate level. So there's, I think there's always going to be, yeah, training ground. There's always going to be a need to have that training ground because it is so effective, and it's also good for for early career scientists and engineers. Um, at at NASA, routinely we would we would use the airborne platform or the um, sounding rockets or balloons for that, but it's so much more effective. Um, with the CubeSat platform, because you go through the full, or you, depending on how much money you have, you can go through the full rigor of testing for space. So it's it's a perfect training ground, you know, from early career all the way down to inspiring, I think, high school students. Um, so I think what we will see is, as time goes on, maybe within the next five to ten years, is you will just start seeing more constellations. And... Um, so there's there's a project that that is underway now called Tropics. It's uh, MIT Lincoln Labs. It stands for Time Resolved Observations of Precipitation Structure and Storm Intensity with a Constellation of Small Satellites. Wow, that's a that's a heck of a backronym. <laughs> I know. Yes. Um, so what's neat about this is it's twelve three U satellites that will be deployed in three different orbital planes to get uh, a fast repeat quick turnaround measurement of the development of, of storms. So we're already seeing you know these small very small constellations. So if you want to have um, many point measurements that's around the earth to measure you know quick processes like weather and storms and cyclones that's an, it's another project that uh, called Cygnus uh, that's the Cyclone Global Navigation Satellite System. And that's, I think, a little bit bigger than the 12U size, but it does use um, some CubeSat components within it. So we're seeing small constellations. So I mentioned uh, the RAVEN project. 
So the vertically, uh, it has vertically aligned uh, carbon nanotubes, uh, and it's going to val validate that technology as a, a radiometer absorbing material and calibration standard uh, for outgoing radiation. So it's a pathfinder for a constellation of 30 to 40. So that's something that's going to be way bigger, and it's going to it's going to measure the energy budget um, of Earth. So the sun irradiates the Earth. Some of the radiation bounces off the top of the atmosphere. Some of it goes to the ground and then gets re-irradiated, but then some gets absorbed. So once they're able to demonstrate um, the one CubeSat, then they'll be in a position to propose a full 30 to 40 constellation um, to do a, a measurement that you could never do with our typical satellites because it would cost too much to put that many up. So what we're seeing is some uh, niche areas that you could only do with constellations and the fact that they're lower cost really helps to implement that or to envision even doing that and um, it, it actually solve, will, will solve hopefully a big, a big question um, for climate. You've said several times now that the that CubeSats will be a great training platform for students and new engineers. But aside from just training with the systems engineering side and the satellite development, specifically the scientific payload, if a, a group of students wants to pursue putting a CubeSat up that has a scientific payload, are there suggestions that you can make that are something they can study, a scientific objective, that will benefit NASA or the industry or space exploration in general? For background, um, SpexCast is a podcast for RIT Space Exploration, uh, which is a, a group at RIT. We actually, um, this past semester, uh, wrote up a, a design document for a potential CubeSat mission um, for the CubeSat launch initiative. We found that they had significant scientific and engineering merit, while at the same time being accessible for our group, which is inexperienced, um, was very difficult. So are there certain experiments that are valuable to science, valuable to NASA, but still accessible for um, inexperienced groups? Are there like, is there a sweet spot for experiments? So CubeSats in general are well suited for passive instruments, although we're starting to see some active ones like de with deployables, like um, small deployable radar dishes, for example, and, and laser comm. But passive instruments like um, microwave radiometers is an area. And so, um, so the science side um, will be, you know, atmospheric composition, um, the uh, precipitation, temperature, humidity data that gets that gets uh, assimilated into numerical weather models, and so it's it's the dynamic processes. I'm just talking about Earth right now. So it's the dynamic processes of the Earth, and most of that is you know the atmosphere moving around. Uh, you know it, it happens quickly and dynamically. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, scientific value. So there's going to be a lot of um, data analysis, if you will. And um, a lot of the projects that we fund, um, even though they're, they're called tech demos, they will lead to science. And uh, so we, we fund not only other 
uh, NASA centers to do these things, but there's usually university partners and sometimes they're university PIs and they have graduate students and, and they will typically, you know, bring them in. Uh, so, so what I'm talking about are grants that professors propose to that then their students could work on. And since CubeSats are well situated for passive instruments, because they don't need a lot of power, so they don't need to be big. Um, can I ask you uh, what NASA's role is um, in this training ground, um, maybe through grants or, or programs? Can you walk me through the process a group might go through for getting their technology into space through a CubeSat? Okay, so there are solicitations, I'll, I'll start with that, that you can propose to. So what you would do is you would write a proposal. You would, you would find a solicitation that would be suited, and there are several of them. Um, there, there are several organizations within NASA that have these calls that are out. And so my, my group puts one out every three years. We started in 2012, and, um, but it's focused for tech demos. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't be a part of it if your professor was, was doing, um, you know, uh, sensor investigations and, and wanted to put a CubeSat in. So you would write the proposal, then you would get accepted for an award, and um, many times in, in parallel, what you would probably do is propose to um, the CubeSat launch initiative to get a slot for a launch. So that's the other thing you have to be concerned with is, okay, I, I, I want to build something, but then I also have to get it launched into space. So the, the CubeSat launch initiative um, is, is one that focuses on um, university, NASA, working with NASA centers, and um, working with nonprofits. So those are sort of the three. Um, you have to be one of those three in order to uh, be able to apply to the CubeSat launch initiative. Um, and then you get in a queue. So while you're building your CubeSat, you get in a queue, and then um, then it's sort of, I don't know if it's speed dating, but um, NASA's uh, launch services provider will, will match you up with a launch, and then you'll be considered as being manifested. And then there's a launch integrator, which then communicates with you to walk you through the steps of um, all the requirements uh, for safety. So the main, the main thing is you can't do harm, do no harm. That's sort of the main motto is usually there'll be a primary that's paying for the launch, and then you have all this extra real estate to put secondaries on, and so the CubeSats would qualify as a secondary. And then the launch integrator um, works with all the CubeSats uh, to make sure they meet all the requirements and that they'll be safe and not do any harm. And so uh, one way is, is to go, is to be a secondary. Another way is to take advantage of the, uh, the space station resupply um, launches, which are very frequent. And so what happens in that case is you would also have a launch integrator, but you would, you would go on either uh, SpaceX's Dragon or Orbital's Cygnus, um, which then attaches, it launches and it attaches to the space station, and then um, it's put into storage. Your CubeSats are, they're in a container, they're put into, into storage, and then when it's time to deploy them, they get they get deployed from these um, standardized deployers that they that they fit into. So I'd like to uh, finish up this episode by talking about 
your experience at the um, Earth Science Technology Office and with um, as the program manager for Invest, um, like what has your experience been um, working with small sats and CubeSats? Um, and if you'd like to share like a cool story about a particular uh, mission, that would be great as well. Okay, so uh, since since I've taken over uh, the program, we have only launched one. <laughs> And it was the it was the it was Raven and it and it was in um, on no, on November 11th. So what what I do besides besides give them you know give them the award and funding is we review their progress and we help them when they get into trouble. So there was one particular thing that I had to get very involved and it was actually at the same time as the small set conference this year. Um, their FCC radio license had not been uh, approved yet. They didn't have their certification yet. And the launch integrator was uh, basically giving them a, a deadline, and it was, it was within 24 hours. And they said, okay, if your license doesn't come in, you can't integrate and you won't launch. Oh, God. <laughs> and that, that's actually a big issue, has become a big issue and, and a, a big focus that I personally uh, have, have to pay attention to and get involved in. And so I, I'll, to make a long story short, at the 11th and a half hour, uh, with me um, intervening, uh, so the spacecraft bus was Blue Canyon, and they were the ones who submitted the frequency license. So I couldn't talk to the FCC, but I had to talk with our spectrum manager and basically walk them through what they needed to do with with the FCC and it was it was crazy <laughs> but they finally got on and once they got on um, and they were integrated and they were at the launch site and the PI actually traveled to go see the launch and that's one of the things that that I can do but I chose not to do this time but I probably will in the future so that's kind of neat I get to go to launches um, what happened was, uh, I don't know if you remember, at Vandenberg, they had a fire. Yeah, forest fire. A forest fire. And so it was sitting on the pad. It was supposed to launch, I believe, September 26th. It was sitting on the pad for quite a long time. And it was very unfortunate that there was one firefighter that lost their life during that time. So it really, it really put our stress in perspective. So, okay, we, we can wait. And then finally it did launch, but then we couldn't hear it. So oh, no. uh, it, it seemed like every, everything was very difficult, but the team was so good that they prevailed anyway. And so we were finally able to uh, get the communications. The, the initial orbits that they were in weren't ideal for the ground stations, and this was the first time that um, that Blue Canyon had had did a they had done a ground station, and so they were a little inexperienced, but they worked so hard, and we're finally at the point where we have two-way communications, and it's just so exciting because within a month, then they're going to turn on the spacecraft. So they don't turn it on initially. The the first thing that you do is. Um, verify that your solar panels deployed, that your UHF antenna deployed, so you have deployables that you need to work to power the spacecraft and to be able to communicate with it. So right now it looks like the spacecraft is doing really well and we're very excited to get data and if this has the performance that, that it needs to have, 
um, it will they will then be ready to go right ahead and do a big proposal to do that um, constellation of 30 uh, in an Earth Venture proposal that NASA has. So it's just very exciting that there are all these issues that come up that you have to work really hard to get through. And this, this project didn't have anything come easy to it. But the team, again, was just so good and they, that they prevailed. And we're just very excited about the potential science that will come out of this. And this will really be um, exciting, along with, along with tropics. So although, that's, although tropics, as I mentioned before, um, it's, it's a constellation getting ready to be built. Uh, it has some commonalities with some other technology developments that we've had within ESTO, which then led to them being able to do that work. So we're very excited for them. Um, and, and we hope that, that they're able to be a part of the paradigm shift of being able to, to make very quick response measurements. And, you know, eventually that will help us be able to predict severe weather you know, where, where the storms are going much quicker and, you know, save lives in the end. So it's just all very exciting. Yeah. And despite all the failures and all the setbacks that, um, that you, you mentioned with Raven, I think um, that at its core really exemplifies why small sats and especially CubeSats are so beneficial because like that was just to validate technology that's going to be used on much larger projects. So you get that experience, you get to fail fast and learn faster um, and it really helps progress uh, the industry even more so. I don't know, it kind of sucks that your first big mission had so many setbacks, but now the next one, I'm sure, will be much, uh, much better and even better than before. Well, yes. And, and also what we intend to do within ESTO is we have a conference every year, and all of within this year we're going to have several, several other ones launched. We're going to have a lessons learned session and we'll probably write something out, write something up and maybe present it at one of these small sat conferences so that we can share all of these lessons learned. Um, and, and even if, even if, for example, you know, a rocket blows up or if you're not able to communicate with your spacecraft, there's, there's still, you know, a way to make it a success in that you, you, you've learned something. So the, the, the key that I focus on is it's, it's fantastic if we can get, you know, a technology demonstrated, but, it, but it's also very important to learn things. And when you look at it, even from the, from the beginning, from the student perspective, for them, it's about the process and the learning. And, you know, it's, it's really engaging and motivating to know it's going to go into space. But even if it doesn't, it's served a very important purpose. And so it's, it's about managing expectations and, you know, having different levels of success criteria, I think. So that's about it for this episode. Um, you, you did provide us with some links for more information that people can um, use to learn more about CubeSats places. Uh, can you describe a few of those for us right now? Okay, so so I, w- I would say the most recent one that came out was the NRC uh, CubeSat study um, for science. So what does NRC stand for? National, oh, I hope I get this right, National Research Council. <laughs> yeah, so NASA and NSF um, requested that, um, that they do this study, and it is very, very comprehensive. Um, and if, if it's about 134 pages, but it has a lot of statistics about how since 1999, 
this area has evolved and what it what it means. And from a science perspective, uh, from all the different science areas, Earth, Earth science, space science, helioscience, astrophysics, astronomy, and biological science even, from all those perspectives, you know, what, where are we now and what, what are the promising areas? So it's very comprehensive report. Um, and you, if you read that, you will, you will learn a lot. There's CubeSat.org, which is where you can go to find the actual standards for um, CubeSats that we've been talking about. They're totally free and open to everyone. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So you can find out who all the vendors are that supply all the kits. So, you know, anybody, uh, if, if a professor gets, gets some money, they can, they can buy these kits and, they can, and the students can work on them. Um, as well as, you know, you can find out who is doing what. And just going to these conferences um, where these websites have the proceedings. So both the SmallSat website and the CubeSat website have all the proceedings of all the past conferences. So there's, there's just a lot of information that's out there. I recommend if you're curious to, to check them out. Uh, where could our listeners go to find out more about ESTO and uh, maybe keep keep up with uh, your mission progress or, or the missions you support. Right. So esto.nasa.gov, there's a space validation um, or a validation tab. Um, it, it actually has a lot of information. It has the, the uh, proceedings of all the ESTO conferences that we've had. So we invite all the PIs that work on all the technology advancements to come and present their work and, and to basically have the PIs network with each other for future collaborations. And so all of their presentations are on there. And all the awards of the solicitations that we have, they're all listed there with um, with uh, abstracts of what they're doing. There's also something called the blue button where we have um, what we call quad charts, which, which describe in very top-level detail what the objectives are what the status is of all the projects that we have. And so we do components, instruments, and then the flight validation. So there's a a lot of information on that website. Great. Thank you very much. So we've been speaking with Dr. Pam Millar from NASA Goddard. Uh, Dr. Millar, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. As 2016 comes to a close, this will be our last episode of the year, and we will be taking a short break for the holiday season. The start of the new year will start season three of SpexCast, beginning with an interview with Matt Greenhouse, the project scientist for the instrumentation payload of the James Webb Space Telescope. Meanwhile, you can always get in touch with the show. Meanwhile, you can always get in touch with us by sending us an email at by sending us an email to specscast at gmail.com or following us on Twitter at RITSpecs. And we also have a brand new website for RIT Space Exploration created by our very own, very talented members. Um, it's specs.rit.edu. Our music was created by Nelson Scott. You can find his stuff at soundcloud.com slash the Nelson Scott or search Nelson Scott on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. So just one last huge thank you to everyone who's listened to the show or reached out to us on social media or by email. 
Um, we really love making it, and it's really great to be able to share our excitement and enthusiasm for space exploration with an audience who enjoys it as well. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next season.